The Interchange is brought to you by PG&E. Did you know that 20% of EV drivers in the U.S. are in PG&E service territory in Northern California? But the electric revolution is not going to happen with single drivers alone, so PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles. Get in touch with PG&E's EV specialists to find out how you can take your transportation fleet electric. Find out more at pge.com gtm. Support for The Interchange also comes from Wonder Capital. By now, you know that Wonder can finance your commercial or community solar projects, and you know they can do it at lightning speeds. But did you know they now have lower rates and can finance all kinds of projects? Head over to wondercapital.com gtm to experience the Wonder difference. Test one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I'm rolling. As am I. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I am Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Shale Khan is my co-host. He is managing director at the VC firm Energy Impact Partners. Hello, Shale. How are you? Hey, Stephen. I am great. How are you? Good. Are you ready to challenge your long-held assumptions today? I am. I think actually this is going to be a very healthy exercise. I I do too. So we are going to challenge our long-held assumptions about energy in this episode. It's getting easier to surround ourselves with people who agree with us, easier to shut out people who don't. We're all victims of this phenomenon. So sometimes it takes a little bit of extra effort to bust out of our intellectual bubbles. And that's what we're doing over the next two episodes. Shale and I are each picking a topic of debate where we have very firm beliefs or assumptions and then taking the other side of that debate. In this episode, we're revisiting the following argument. Most people do not care about energy. Shale, you chose this one. Why? Well, I think, you know, I've spent basically my entire career in energy. And for most of that time, I've just held this assumption that, put simply, people don't care about energy. Or to be a little bit more specific about it, that people don't care enough about energy such that they will modify their behavior sufficiently to impact the trajectory of energy consumption or climate change. In other words, the solution or one big chunk of the solution to climate change is not getting people to modify their behavior because people don't care quite enough. What people do care about are things like comfort and security and time and if they can afford it, coolness. And so to the extent that you want to get people to change their behavior um, for some greater purpose on energy, you basically need to trick them into it by, you know, luring them in with one of these other things, get them to install a smart thermostat, for example, for comfort reasons, um, which carries some energy savings on the back end. But that energy itself is just not enough of a motivating factor to get people to do anything meaningful. Mm -hmm. This is an important topic because I think it's the foundation of a lot of business models, along with a lot of academic papers. So a lot of companies are built on this premise. Here's how this episode is going to work. Shale's going to take the opposite stance of what he just outlined. So he's going to argue that consumers do, in fact, care about energy, that we don't just need to trick them, that they will use their internal motivations to do something about their energy use, buy clean energy, whatever it is. I'm going to respond by taking the other side. I'm going to argue that consumers don't care about energy. Now, this might be a little tricky because as I thought about this topic, I realized that I'm somewhere in the middle. (laughs) I mean, I agree with the argument that consumers do care about energy. I think there's a lot of compelling data on either side. So we're both challenging ourselves here. 
Why don't you start with your first argument, Shale, and then we'll walk through them sequentially, and I'll do my best to challenge you as we go. Okay. So I basically have four arguments against myself, four arguments for why people do, in fact, care enough about energy to change their behavior. And the first one, interestingly enough, is my own undergraduate thesis, um, which requires a moment of explanation, probably. So in college, I was a a psychology major, um, and I was interested in studying perception and cognition and how people's perceptions of the world impact their behavior. And I wasn't really interested in energy until my junior year of college, I took two classes in a row, one called Strategic Natural Resources that introduced me to the energy sector in general and to climate change, and then another on public utility regulation, where I discovered not only was I interested in energy, but like I was interested specifically in how utilities are regulated, which seemed like a sign to me that if I was interested in that, then um, this is somewhere I should spend a lot of time. Uh, So midway through college, actually toward the tail end, I discovered that I wanted to spend all my time thinking about energy, but I was already a psychology major and it was too late for me to change my major without adding an extra semester, which I was unwilling to do and couldn't afford. So I ended up tailoring my psychology major to focus on the psychology of energy and behavior. Um, this seems in other words, very unfair. I did not <laughs> know this about you. I- I'm stepping into an unlevel playing field right now. Well, I guess I'm about to tell you what I ended up doing, but then tell you why I don't really believe it. So <laughs> you can decide whether it's an unlevel playing field or not, but I'm, I'm laying out what I think was a bit of naivete that I had at the time. <laughs> okay, okay. Anyway, so long story short, um, I was looking at all this literature on what gets people to actually conserve energy at the time. And it was clear that one thing that doesn't get people to conserve energy is to just inform them about all the reasons that they should. You know, you could tell people about saving money, you could tell people about climate change, all these things it doesn't really have a big impact. Um, but I had a theory that w- one thing that might work was to give people much more regular feedback about how much energy they were actually consuming. This is, you know, in the early, really early days of smart meters. So most people didn't have access to that in any form. Um, so I ran a study where I took a group of people and gave them daily estimated feedback. In other words, I told them on a daily basis about how much energy they were consuming, electricity specifically, uh, and then compared that to a control group that that didn't get that information and got about a somewhere between a six and 7% reduction in energy consumption from the group that was informed daily. So that to me at the time was evidence that people actually do care. They just need the information in order to, to do that. I, I went a little bit further then and, and thought, well, what if you could even tell people how much their neighbors were consuming and maybe that would get them to conserve even more. Um, I didn't end up doing anything with that, but that turned out to be basically the basis of O-Power. Yeah, exactly. And (laughs) I was just going to say, oh, wait, did you invent O-Power's business model or something? Kind of, but I didn't, turns out (laughs) I didn't create a business out of it. What a mistake. Um, but you know, O-Power, so I was only doing this over a very short period of time. So the six to 7% probably wouldn't have held, but O-Power has a much longer track record. And just by providing people comparative information, how much you're consuming versus how much your neighbors are consuming, they get over long periods of time, you know, roughly a 2% reduction in energy consumption. So, you know, the sort of O-Power world of delivering information does have a meaningful, if somewhat marginal impact on people's behavior and ultimately consumption. 
for those who have not dug into this research, I highly recommend you watch Alex Lasky's TED Talk from, I think it was 2008, 2009, in which he outlines O-Power's business model. Maybe it was a little bit later than that. Anyway, it's a really good video to watch, and it still holds up today. I will say that that behavioral psychology research is compelling, Shale, but if you look at what a company like Opower has been able to do, they basically go into a utility territory and they can get a couple of percent improvement, incremental improvements in energy efficiency. People do care when you give them the right signals, but they don't do much beyond the basics that you tell them to do. And I don't think people actually care that much. I think it shows that you can nudge people in the right direction. But uh, in reality, they're probably not going to go much deeper than that. Most people. Yes, it's it's a pretty small difference overall. Um, and I think you could make an argument that, that it doesn't really... Uh, argue against my original premise, because especially with the the O-Power type case, what you're doing is showing people how much their neighbors are consuming. And so it's possible that what you're tapping into is not necessarily people's inherent desire to reduce their energy consumption, but rather their inherent competitiveness. It's a keeping up with the Joneses type of thing. And so it, it could just be another similar way of sort of effectively tricking people into conserving. You just argued against yourself there. What are you arguing <laughs> for now? I don't know anymore. <laughs> I know. No, I, I agree. I think you are tricking people in a way. I mean, you're you're hacking into their brains. God, I hate that term, yeah, hacking no. into your brains. But you're using v tried and true behavioral psychology techniques to tap people's competitive nature. And I don't think that necessarily has anything to do with energy inherently. Okay, so let me move on to argument number two then. So argument number one was basically it, it, there is proven evidence with large groups of people that you can induce behavioral change, even if it's somewhat marginal behavioral change, simply by telling people either more about how much they're consuming or more about how much their neighbors are consuming. The second argument that I would make is that there are a bunch of places where people in relatively large numbers have proven that they actually will act and in this case make a purchase um, specifically and clearly to induce change around climate change or renewable energy when they're given that option. So who are these people? <laughs> well, the obvious group is anybody who's buying voluntary recs. So there, you know, there's a compliance market for renewable energy credits, which is driven by state renewable portfolio standards. But there is also an often forgotten relatively large market for voluntary renewable energy credits. People who, individuals or sometimes businesses who just buy RECs for no other reason that they, than that they want green energy. Um, this is, you know, there are about 5.5 million customers in 2017 who, uh, who bought voluntary RECs. That was about 26% of all renewable energy sales. And it's been growing. In megawatt hour terms, uh, it went from voluntary rec sales went from about 54 million megawatt hours in 2012 to 112 million in 2017. Now, a lot of that came from 
CNI from commercial and industrial yeah, EPAs. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm going to push back on. I think it's mostly CNI, and it's companies that want to say that they're green. They're not necessarily doing anything about their energy use. They're using it as a convenient band-aid. Well, I want to come back to the company side of it, but I will say it just on the residential side as well. Um, it's smaller, but it has also been growing. There were 6 million megawatt hours of voluntary residential rec purchases in 2012. It's close to 9 million in 2017. So it grew by almost half. Um, and that represents about 885,000 residential customers, which is, you know, not a tiny number. And then there are companies now, new companies that have popped up that are seeing really massive success selling something similar. Arcadia Power, which we've talked about before and is an EIP portfolio company, so full disclosure, is a great example of that. They are having enormous success selling customers on, um, you know, green energy options that are often sleeved with, with RECs. I don't think you can find any argument for why individuals would do that that isn't evidence that at least some subset of people are interested in you know, taking action. Yeah, but how much of this has to do with competitive energy suppliers going door to door, knocking on people's doors and saying, hey, we can give you this agreement for two years that's cheaper than your standard utility, and then they end up aggregating recs and selling a you know a green energy supply to a consumer through a contract and the consumer just sees this sheet of paper that says you're going to get green energy it's you know a door-to-door salesperson there are probably a lot of people who are buying recs as part of a competitive supply agreement who don't even know that they're buying recs so there's a lot wrapped up into that claim yeah i think that probably most people who are individuals who are buying recs don't know what a rec is but right, they know but those that people they're getting... are not like pursuing this they're getting sold on it by usually a pretty pushy salesperson i mean i don't know i don't know how many of these are competitive markets i don't know you know i don't i don't have any of that information so it's a fair point what i would say is that i don't think the relevant question is whether it's being pushed upon them or whether they are proactively seeking it out i think the relevant question here is whether their customers have shown willingness to pay extra for green energy def, you know defined however but generally in this case via rex now they may not have to anymore that's been the big change in the market increasingly you have things like community solar where you can save money or rooftop solar you can save money right so that's a different thing and i'm not including those um specifically because they save you money but if you are willing to spend more for something and that thing has no value other than for you to believe that you are procuring green energy, then that seems like sufficient evidence to me that at least the people who do that are willing to act. Kind of, a, I'll give you this one because let's wrap together Rex, community solar and green tariff programs. Generally, they do quite well. Green tariff programs and community solar programs are often oversubscribed. So I think we can say that there is pretty strong consumer demand for those kinds of products. And I'd say, yeah, that's an indicator that consumers, a decent subset of consumers care about energy. But still, those are early adopters. Those are people who are environmentally minded. They're hundreds of thousands, if not the low millions of households. That doesn't prove to me that the majority of people care about energy. No, it certainly does not. And in fact, I think you were being generous in lumping community solar in there because, again, community solar, for the most part, the value proposition is a savings-based one, which I think complicates this argument. But fair enough. You know, corporate 
fleet vehicles are getting electrified at a pretty rapid pace. Electric buses are starting to take hold. Big corporations are recognizing that they have to make their vehicles electric. And PG&E is doing the best that it can to help electrify school buses and transit buses, delivery vehicles, all sorts of vehicles for municipalities and corporations. So if you're in California, you're in PG&E service territory, you can get the financial, logistical, and construction support for electrifying your fleet. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to learn more at pge.com gtm. And if you're looking to pair that EV charging with some solar, our other sponsor, Wonder Capital, can help you out. They help with all kinds of solar projects. Community Solar with 100% residential offtake in New York. Hawaii Solar with storage. California Community Choice Aggregation Solar. There are so many different kinds of solar projects, and Wonder doesn't just support vanilla commercial scale projects. It's doing all kinds of stuff. And if you need support for your project, head on over to wondercapital.com gtm to work with folks who will understand your unique project for what it truly is, financeable. Let's move on to argument number three, which is back to companies. Um, so we have this trend over the past few years of companies, you know, they've been buying voluntary recs, like you said, for actually a fairly long time, that market has been around. Um, but what's been happening over the past few years is that many, many companies now, I think it's like 170 plus large companies have committed to ultimately procuring 100% of their power, not just recs from clean or renewable sources. And you know, I think the reality of those commitments is that they're often not profitable or there's no guarantee that they're going to be profitable. So, you know, if you thought that the company was doing it exclusively because it's just cheaper, um, then I think that would argue against the point that I'm trying to make here. But I think that's actually not the case a lot of the time. And these companies may end up having to spend more money in order to do this. So then why would they do it? they have to believe that there is some kind of a brand boost um, that is given to them by committing to these kinds of pledges and signing these renewable PPAs. There was a Deloitte resources study that comes out every year um, that in this last version found that 69% of businesses said that their customers are demanding that they procure more renewables up 9% from the previous year. So these companies believe that consumers care enough that it will impact the brand of the company. Um, And though that is like a slightly circuitous argument, I do think that to the extent that the companies are, are right about the brand value, that is further evidence that consumers care. Yeah, but there's a crucial distinction here. If you look at a lot of that polling, people are saying, yeah, of course, this makes me feel more positive about this brand when they procure more renewable energy. They're not saying, oh, I'll walk away from this company if they don't. Those companies are more afraid of organizations like Greenpeace for writing a report and going to the press and making them look bad than they care about the individual consumer who's going to sit there and look at different ice cream flavors and, you know, ask which one is 100% renewable energy. So I think it's a pressure thing from distinct environmental groups and progressive groups, not necessarily proof that consumer behavior is shifting these companies. Well, that's a good segue, I think, into my last argument, which is that while it, it may be true that Americans don't care enough 
to substantially change their behavior. Uh, there are a number of countries where there is some pretty good evidence that they really do care. And I will start with Sweden. I actually, I want to give credit to Ben Gaddy, who's a friend and works at Clean Energy Trust. I was talking to him about this and as I was starting to think through this and he suggested this one, which I think actually might be my strongest argument. Um, so in Sweden, there is a term that I'm going to, I'm going to mispronounce a bunch of words in the next <laughs> minute or so, because I have to, I have to speak Swedish and then a few other languages, uh, none of which I speak. So please Swedish people forgive me. Um, but there's a term that has, uh, arrived in Sweden that's called flagscam, F L Y G S K A M, which means flight shame, um, and it has become a real thing in Sweden to that people feel shame when they take flights, specifically because of climate change. Um, the Swedish National Rail Service recorded a, a record number of customers last year and specifically attributed it to, quote unquote, the big interest in climate smart travel. Meanwhile, air travel in Sweden is falling substantially. It was down four and a half percent in the first quarter of this year. There's been a year on year drop in passengers at Swedish airports for seven consecutive months. People in Sweden appear to actually be flying less and taking the rail more. And as far as we can tell, it is due to their desire to have less of an impact on climate change. And in fact, that is not the only word that has emerged in Swedish. In well, brother, flight, don't go to Sweden because you're going to be like a pariah. <laughs> for all the flying that I do? <laughs> yeah. I mean, truly, I will feel I will feel shame. Because in addition to flag scam, which is flying shame, there is also a term called tagskrit, which is <laughs> train bragging. It's kind of the opposite of flying shame and then it's, it's a variation of the humble brag yeah it's the train brag and then smigflega which is flying in secret which i suppose means flying oh and not God. telling anyone else that you're doing it. this is a real thing by the way no these are so good i know and just wait it's not just sweden i mean sweden is where the evidence is is strongest here but the uh the lexicon part of it has emerged in other countries as well the shape the flying shame term there's a german word for it flugsham there's a Finnish word for it, lentohapia, and there's a Dutch word for it, which, God, I don't want to have to pronounce, but is something like vliegschumpt. <laughs> so we have a bunch of European countries that actually have a word for shame of around flying. If that's not evidence that at least people in those countries care enough to uh, make it, you know, change their behavior, then I don't know what is. Well, you've kind of blown my mind here. I'm not even really sure where to go with this. What is the word in English that can convey that sense of shame. I mean, we don't have it. When's the last time that you like seriously outside of, you know, niche climate circles, you seriously heard anyone talking about being ashamed of flying? Well, in the US, I guess we don't have that sense of shame culture around transportation, around SU using trucks and SUVs, around air travel. We shun the train, we make fun of it. We don't invest in it. It's just not part of our culture. And we don't feel a sense of shame when we use more energy. I think broadly that is that is generally true in America. Um, so my final argument is, is not that people don't necessarily care enough about energy to substantially change their behavior. It may be that Americans don't care enough about energy to substantially change their behavior. Did, did I just walk into that one? <laughs> uh, you are sounded you feeling... like you wrapped that up so nicely, like you were waiting for me to walk into it. <laughs> Argscom, which maybe is the, the argument shame <laughs> in Swedish. I assume that's a word. 
Well, you've laid out some pretty compelling arguments, and you took me in some directions that I did not expect to go. The question of the episode is, did you convince yourself? Uh, Mostly no, (laughs) to be honest. I mean, you know, I think that on the margins, there are are groups of people who will um, make purchasing decisions, some behavioral decisions, and will make have, make some bit of a difference in terms of their own energy consumption or the the products they purchase and so on. Um, I mean, in, in keeping specific to, to the U.S. for a moment, I still, I think, fundamentally don't think that that's going to be a big, uh, a big enough wedge to make a significant difference in terms of our trajectory of climate change. Um, now, I'm interested in what's happening in Northern Europe and you know, whether this flag scam is a a real thing and we'll start to see a, a big change in behavior there or whether it's sort of a flash in the pan. I don't really know. Um, but that to me is the, the actual, of all the arguments, it's the strongest one that there is a, a sizable group of people who might actually be, be doing something different. But, it, you know, from the perspective of how do we attack um, climate change, I, I don't really think I changed my own opinion all that much. Well, here's the thing. All right. As I thought about this, I, I realized that energy is a lot like online privacy. People say they want it, but convenience almost always outweighs everything. So they're going to care about energy if there's a crisis, if a company tricks their brains, or if it's convenient add-on to something else. And in rare circumstances, shame can really create a cultural movement. But in general, I think energy is outside of what we normally think about day to day. The only way to get consumers interested in energy, at least here in the U.S., is to give them something else. A piece of technology that provides entertainment, convenience, or security, and all that energy stuff is a bonus. People want to look good. They want, they care about price. They care about convenience. They care about lifestyle. They don't care about the energy itself. That's what I still think. Yeah, I think there are going to be exceptions to that, but I think if you're looking at the bulk of the American population, that is probably true. That doesn't mean, though, that you can't have an impact. You can create massive companies on this if you find a way to integrate into people's lives. I don't think that we should end on a down note. I mean, it just shows that businesses find new ways in. They find new ways to approach people's lives. And we've seen a lot of success. Sure. I mean, offer savings, offer comfort, offer security, offer a better user interface, offer, you know, a better a better mechanism to work with your um, with your energy providers. You know, there's lots of different things you can tap into that for which the, you know, energy and climate part might be icing on the cake and might, in fact, push people over the line where they wouldn't otherwise. But um, start with one of those things. Sure. And to close with a commonly used quote from Amory Lovins from many decades ago, people don't want energy. They want cold beer and hot showers. Mm-hmm. Well, that's going to do it. What about all of you out there? Do you think any differently about this topic? What else are you challenging yourself on? Next week, I'm going to give it a go. Until then, rate and review us anywhere you get your shows. Please pass this show along to your friends and colleagues or someone else you disagree with. Shale, thanks for taking this one on first. Yeah, thanks for thinking through it with me. Yeah, it's a good one. I really like this topic because I I have very strongly held beliefs. You didn't change my mind necessarily, but you got me thinking about the issue in different ways. Mm -hmm. And now you're going to start experiencing flag scum (laughs) or tag (laughs) screech. Make sure to come back next time for 
round two with Shail Khan. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media. Thank you.